Hey there, friends of Holy Shenanigans Podcast. I'm thrilled to share that I'll be recording live from the Wild Goose Festival this July 11 through 14. Wild Goose Festival is a transformational community grounded in faith-inspired social justice. It's a one-of-a-kind gathering that brings together activists, artists, and seekers from all walks of life to explore justice and art, spirituality, and community. The festival will take place at Van Hoy Farms in Union Grove, North Carolina, and I'd love for you to join me there. From engaging workshops to inspired panels and interactive experiences, Wild Goose has something for everyone. So mark your calendars and let's be part of this incredible community that is committed to making a positive impact in the world. For more information, visit www. WildGooseFestival.org. As one of my followers, use a discount code A-TLE24. That's A-TLE24. And you'll get $50 off the price of an adult weekend ticket. We will see you there at the Wild Goose Festival to connect, to build community, and to work for social justice. Welcome to Holy Shenanigans. I'm your muse, Tara Lamont Eastman, a poet, a pastor, and a podcaster. In week five of Lent is a Jesus story of Lazarus and his community moving from death and grief to a miracle of resurrection and new life for both Lazarus and his community. I welcome guest Mike Morrell with a conversation about three and a half questions about love and how love has the power to lift us up and release us to new life. Stay tuned for episode 82 of Holy Shenanigans Podcast, Fit to be Untied. The lyrics from the song, Please Release Me, Let Me Go, Thank You, Tom Jones, have been bouncing around my mind all week. Please release me, let me go, for I don't love you anymore. To waste our lives would be a sin. Release me and let me love again. The singer of this song wants to move on from where he, she is in order not to waste time living in a relationship without love. While the lyrics of the song lack commitment to work out an existing relationship, I'm still impressed by the boldness of the lyrics that challenges people not to waste time on something that has ended. As the song says, to waste our lives would be a sin. Release me and let me love again. All of which brings me to a holy shenanigans story about the power of relationship, release, and lifting one another up. There once was a group of four brothers who were playing tag one evening in a cemetery. They lived right around the corner, so this was a common practice. Ready, set, go, shouted the eldest, and the three other boys scattered to sprint over the hills and the headstones. This game was really no contest because the older brother was bigger and faster. He tagged the first brother and then the second. But then where was the third? He was nowhere to be found. The sun was setting and they knew it was time to head home. Had the last boy gone home? Where would he be? 
As they talked about what they would tell their dad about their youngest brother being missing, the three brothers began to sweat. They knew what dad would do if they came home without their brother. As the three boys pondered their unfortunate fate, they heard a muffled voice just at the base of the hill. Help! I'm over here! Can anybody hear me? Somebody, please, let me out of here! The three boys tentatively approached this gravesite that was being prepared for burial. The plot had been dug and had been covered by a tarp. But when the boy had run over the tarp, it had given way and he'd fallen six feet under into an empty grave. Once the boys realized that this voice was their little brother, the eldest left the others behind to take care of the problem, and also so he could be first to tell the story to his father. The youngest boy looked up from this grave and pleaded with his two brothers left and said, please let me out of here. The next youngest boy looked at the dirt-covered face of his baby brother had compassion on him, and somehow they found a way to pull him out of this deep hole. The young boy went from being lost to being found, from being left to being lifted, in a matter of a few moments, with just a little compassion. As the two brothers headed home for dinner, they knew the meaning of rescue, release, and the power of lifting one another up. This week's gospel lesson is one about anointing and radical hospitality of Jesus being anointed with an expensive perfume by Mary Magdalene. And this is a story in which Lazarus is present. This week, I'm going to be dipping back into chapter 11 of John to learn more about this story of resurrection and Lazarus. There is a thread of renewal and restoration that is important to consider. Like the boys playing hide-and-seek in that graveyard, Lazarus goes from being left to being lifted, or technically, released. So the story of Lazarus' resurrection goes like this. He is a dear friend of Jesus who dies in Jesus' absence. Jesus arrives days later on the scene to a family wrecked with grief, to his sisters Mary and Martha. Martha, overwhelmed with grief, exclaims, If you had only been here, Lazarus would not have died. I love this story of Jesus because he is where Mary and Martha are. He is wrecked with grief alongside them. He then asks the crowd where Lazarus is laid, and he tells the people to roll away the stone where he is buried. The people resist, but do as he asks. Jesus prays, thanking God for hearing him and asks for God's help in the moment to come for the sake of the crowd. Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb wrapped in grave clothes. Jesus tells the crowd, unbind him and let him go. And so the crowd does as Jesus asks. They unbind him and before them, they see Lazarus once dead now alive and released, unbound. I love this story that the crowd is part of Lazarus's unbinding. The crowd are partners with Jesus in this release from death to life, to love, to restoration. Lazarus is released from death, and the crowd is not only witness, but part of the miracle, so that Lazarus and the crowds might live again. The New Interpreter's Commentary says this about the story. 
Jesus' powerful announcement to Martha suggests that the church needs to embrace Jesus as the resurrection and life, not only at times of death, but in daily moments of human lives. Daily moments of resurrection and new life. So in the intersection of this Bible story, think back for a moment to the story of hide-and-seek in a cemetery gone wrong. To the words of Tom Jones, paired with the amazing story of Lazarus's resurrection, and reflect once more upon those words. To waste our lives would be a sin. Release us and let us love again. It's not only Lazarus who gets stuck or little boys playing tag in a graveyard, is it? There are lots of ways that people feel stuck. When we're stuck in traffic, we long for an open road. When a flight is delayed, we long for that connecting flight. When a relationship isn't working, we long for one that is alive. When we're stuck in negativity, we long for a positive atmosphere. When we're stuck in apathy, we long for the courage to stand up and take action in authenticity. Lazarus is not the only one who is stuck. We all get stuck and need help out of our stuckness or our holes. This week's guest is a person who has helped me out of a few holes and stuckness, although he might not even know it. Mike Morell is an avid writer, publishing consultant, author, coach, futurist, and curator of the book reviewing community, The Speakeasy. It was years ago through The Speakeasy that I was introduced to Mike. Speakeasy was a book resource that allowed me as a young parent, parish worker, and student with no budget for books to have access to books. The books that Mike provided for me untied my heart and soul. Today, I'm excited to have the opportunity to talk with Mike and ask him three and a half questions of love, especially the kinds of love that lift, inspire, and set all of us free. with Mike Morrell. Back in the day of Emergent Village, Speakeasy was a way for me to be lifted up and to have access to books about God and faith and spirituality that were mm. very encouraging to me. So I have to say thank you. Oh, wow, Tara, that, that's beautiful to hear. And you're welcome. That's that's large part of what we want to do with, with Speakeasy, connecting amazing books and ideas to avid readers and reviewers like you. And so it's it's really touching that it was there for you during that time. And I think that brings us to our conversation about love today and the different ways that love presents in the world and the ways that we understand it. The first question I have for you is, what do you love about being you? But I think you might have some context about love first. I do have some context about love first, you know, not to be pedantic, but uh, I've come to realize that love, while it's this phenomenon that we, you know, all reference and talk about, it means so many different things to so many different people. Like in the English language, we use the same word to describe our favorite ice cream as we do our life partners. And so there's, uh, there's obviously a lot of leeway there. And so for me, I'm realizing that love, while it's infinite, and endlessly describable, it contains at least four essential on-the-ground components. Uh, For me, love contains feeling, will, action, and time. Mm. You know, 
feeling because, of course, like I hate it when hyper spiritual types and reductive materialists alike try to discount the emotional and affectionate nature of love. It's like, well, come on, you know, whether we're talking about love of country or our favorite meal, there is something stirring inside of us. Right. Mm -hmm. And yes, at the same time, spiritual people, there's more to it than that. And, And yes, science types, there's a whole chemical factory that's exploding in our veins and our glands. But focusing solely on this is a bit like focusing on the radio transistors when you're trying to understand the content of a broadcast, (laughs) you know, especially when it comes to familial or romantic love. Love is stirring and it, it sets our world ablaze. So feeling is essential. But will or volition, because at the same time, any love worthy of the name doesn't subsist in the realm of feeling alone. You know, that can simply be sentiment conjured and manipulated by marketers, politicians, and other magicians seeking to exploit a state of feeling for their own ends. Love might often begin as a feeling and hopefully in nurture remain as a feeling, but must consciously be chosen again and again. Integrating the the heat of our feeling with the light of our awareness alchemizes love into something far sturdier than either passion or antiseptic clarity alone. And that brings me to action, because, of course, maturing love is a verb. If it's not, it risks being myopically self-referential, as exemplified by the devotional and anti-devotional song by one of my favorite bands, Me Without You. Uh, They have this line uh, in the song, to God, every thought, a thought of you. And, And they say, there's no one here to believe but you. Everyone else is bound to leave but you. When they swear their love is real, they mean, I like the way you make me feel. There's no one here to believe but you. As I get older, I just realize that emotionally healthy love contains consistent and reliable actions. And these actions can vary wildly depending on the participants and the parameters of a given love bond. But restful attachment births specific anticipations of the beloved's behavior toward the lover's that's both spacious and yet dependable. So that we can sink into both freedom and security. And of course, you know, one of the dimensions in which love grows is that of time. No matter what fireworks ensue upon initial contact, no matter how many past lives we may have known each other in, <laughs> mundane, this worldly time is its own peculiar soil. It, it contains the power to both nourish and acidify the roots of love. So for me, feeling, volition, and action are the depth dimensions to love. Time is its necessary breadth of expression. And so with all of that said, <laughs> what do I love about being me? One is that I can, you know, take a seemingly simple question and really complicate it. <laughs> well, I think you're in good company. Um, just think about all the ways William Shakespeare spoke of love, Mike. Mm, okay. Wow. <laughs> How many sonnets? No or anything. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm in that rarefied company. <laughs> um, yeah, I I think that you know now that I'm in my 40s, uh, I'm beginning to love my quirks. I'm beginning to love my eccentricities and the things that in my 20s and 30s I may have thought made me you know too much for some people. 
Um, so I love that I have like a ridiculously large sprawling library of, of books and comic books. Uh, I, I love that I can, you know, hold forth on ecology, spirituality, sexuality, but then also really geek out on, on comic books and, you know, and, and nerd culture. And, and I find that, you know, as I'm getting older, like, you know, I, I find my people, I find the people who, you know, want to be in relationship with me and, uh, you know, who either, you know, very tolerantly uh, tolerate my quirks or are also into them themselves. And, you know, creating chosen family has been important to me as, as someone who was adopted from birth and who had a very loving, you know, home that I grew up in but also was aware of that, that extra dimension of, of family being the people that we choose to surround ourselves with. Yeah. Um, so part of the first question I ask my guests, you know, is to, to get to uh, a pulse of, you know, who they are as people. Um, but in this podcast, this episode in particular, you know, I speak about Lazarus being set free and being brought back to life by Christ, but also how Jesus involves the community in the untying of Lazarus. I am fascinated by that because Jesus could have done this without the people, but Jesus does things with the people. Um, and, and And we understand better, I think, who we are in community. Absolutely. Jesus doesn't seem to do much without the people when we get right down to it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, traveling with this this band of people, almost like a, a hunter-gatherer tribe that was out of time, even in, in first century Palestine. You know, Paul picks up the imagery of the body of Christ. Like, there's always this participatory element uh, involved. And I, I don't think that's a coincidence, you know, like, in moral development theory, uh, Lawrence Kohlberg and Carol Gilligan talk about essentially breaking down maturity and moral development as how wide are our circles of empathy? Um, you know, how, how many people can we actually include in who we love? And that people who are, you know, relatively low in developmental acuity are the lowest rung is, are narcissists, people who only love themselves. Um, not too far above that are people who only love their families. Uh, you know, it's great to love your family, but if you consider it to be us versus the rest of the world, then that's, that's still a pretty uh, meager sphere of development. But if we continue to expand, if we, you know, I read a really interesting and impactful book about a dozen years ago called The Empathic Civilization mm. by Jeremy Rifkin. And he talked about how contemporary progressives, um, like I imagine many of your listeners, we might understandably look down upon, say, nationalism or even uh, religious identity markers as being the, the sum and summit of who we love to say, oh, well, you know, my Christian tribe or my, you know, American tribe. But at the time, Rifkin argues, that actually represented an expansion of empathy beyond, you know, smaller units, that we began to have this imaginal capacity to say, I am intimately related with my countrymen, and that this was, this represented a a growth of who we cared about, or, wow, we we share this common set of of practices and beliefs, and and it doesn't matter where geographically we are, uh, we all have this solidarity with each other, Mm -hmm. and 
And I think it's important to honor those as developmental milestones while also understandably uh, pushing ever further out to say, can we have a felt sense of solidarity with the human race? Can we have a felt sense of solidarity with non-human creation, with, with ecology itself? And so, you know, it's like a nested uh, doll. There, there are these different layers mm-hmm. and they're all wonderful in context. And yet as aspiring Jesus followers, you know, he says this much the same thing as Kohlberg and Gilligan. He's like, if you only love those you, who love you, mm-hmm. what, you know, what credit is that? Even the Gentiles do that, yeah. which... I love how that was like the sickest burn he could think of. <laughs> and mic drop. Right? So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, just think about that for a minute. Well, I mean, in, in sharing those intersections of love, you know, I keep thinking about the word Ubuntu that <laughs> Nelson Mandela used um, that in the dismantling of apartheid, right? That there's no future without forgiveness and that I am me because we are in relationship with one another. You know, that's that ever expanding um, circumference um, or spiral really of, of, of expansive love. Yeah. Yeah. Ubuntu is this co-arising of, of feeling, will, action, and time. It's, mm-hmm. it's creating a we space uh, with each other. That is the beloved community. That is that way in which we can untie the one who was in the grave clothes and make space yeah. for resurrection. Yeah. And so I am curious for you to talk about who you love. And, and sometimes when I ask this question, it's kind of like the Oscars that people mm-hmm. list. <laughs> I want to thank. Um, right. I, um, yeah. But um and and you have space for that here as well. But, you know, maybe a story of love that is important, essential or formative for you comes to mind. I think, you know, to, to take your leap, though, and go into specificity, I would say that my my daughter, my youngest daughter, Nova, who, as we're recording this tomorrow, will be having her eighth birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, she turned my world upside down. She really helped me understand fresh what love even could mean. Um, you know, when we had Nova, we had no idea until she was born that she has Down syndrome. And, and it was a you know, complete shock, a complete surprise. And equally surprising, I think, was the responses of sympathy we received as though this were like the worst news we could possibly get. And that was just not congruent with this little baby that we invited into our lives who has become just this amazing little girl. And everyone, you know, with Down syndrome is different. And and we were fortunate that she didn't have a number of physical health complications that so many of our other friends who might have Down syndrome family members have. So she's been, you know, physically a specimen of of health. And she just has a different developmental register. Mm -hmm. And what I find in that is the sense of unconditional presence that she has. These days, when Nova enters into a room, she says, I'm here. <laughs> Just this full throated announcement, like, celebrate with me. Well, like a constellation or a universe or a Nova. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Our little supernova. <laughs> and we're like, yes, Nova, you are here. Also, it's really early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> And just her ability to play and to be present 
and to delight in, you know, all kinds of just really simple things, just, you know, affectionate touch and laughter. She loves to draw. And I don't know, I, I don't, I don't think I get to fully see the world through Nova's eyes, but getting to come alongside of her in such close proximity just shows me a whole different dimension of love. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think when you spoke about, you know, the definitions of love, those four elements that you talked about, Nova entering your lives as a family and, and as people gave you space to really live into those four elements in new ways. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, did definitely hone our will because it's not a cakewalk. I mean, parenting of any kind uh, requires a lot if we're willing to step up to the plate and do it well. Um, And to parent a child who, depending on how things go, might be dependent on us on a daily basis forever. Mm -hmm. That just changes the sort of Western time clock of 18 years, give or take, uh, you know, and then you're discharged of your most immediate parenting duties, at least. <laughs> um, it does tend yeah. to cycle back. I've, I've been told by my friends with slightly older children. It does. That, I can assure you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that sort of resetting of, of the will and that time dimension of like, okay, this is, this is a different pace than, than our oldest daughter, probably. And yeah, the the actions that are called for are unique. And it does evoke just so much true feeling. Uh, Mm. I wouldn't wouldn't trade this experience for anything. Mm. Thank you for that deep answer to a question that could go very simply or very, very complicated. I appreciate that. (laughs) So our third question, what do you love to do in the world? I feel like I have these dual components I grew up in a house where my dad worked several jobs just to make ends meet mm-hmm. and was such a provider. And yet my parents also supported me in, in my dreams as, uh, as much as that can now sometimes sound almost trite in a world where it is really difficult to get by financially increasingly under, you know, late stage capitalism. Yeah. But I always had, you know, more creative leanings. I wanted to, first I wanted to be an artist mm-hmm. and, uh, and I enjoyed visual art And then I realized I kind of took a reality check of myself, probably in 10th grade, where I was like, I'm a fair to middling artist in this one art class in one high school of four high schools in my county. (laughs) Can I really make a go at this? And right or wrong, I decided that I could not. And uh, and I decided to switch to one of my other loves, which is is writing, storytelling, and uh, and really just dove headfirst into that. I had a, a mentor as a teenager, um, a man named Bob Burden, who is an underground comics creator right. who has Flaming Carrot comics and The Mystery Men, which was made into a, a 1999 film with yes. Ben Stiller and Janine DeGraffalo. With the bowling and ball. <laughs> yes, yes, you know. I know. Paul, Re- Paul Rubens made his big comeback in that movie post Pee Wee and Imprisonment. It was mm-hmm. a good time. Uh, so when I was 15, I was reading some Flaming Carrot comic books that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles had crossed over into. And I got into the carrot, even though it was technically probably meant for an older audience. And in the days before the internet, or at least the readily accessible internet, I discovered he lived in Georgia where I lived. And I looked him up in the white pages and just called him randomly one day. That was brave. (laughs) 
<laughs> it was brave of both of us. He just picked up like it was the most normal thing in the world, uh, answered all my questions graciously, and then invited me to a yard sale that he was having the next weekend at the end of the call. That's incredible. And my my fundamentalist parents, who you know barely let me be in a youth group with girls, somehow let me start going over there for a couple of days at a time and working for this perpetual bachelor who's highly eccentric, who has this all these ties in the art world and World War II memorabilia, and it's just such an experience as a sheltered teenager to uh, to enter into Bob's uh, surrealist post-punk, post-disco Atlanta world of the 90s where he's, you know, in the process of selling these film rights to Universal. And and I'm like helping him with everything from yard work to touching up artwork to editing movie scripts to helping him with his taxes. And it was just a, a firsthand glimpse of what it could be like to be a working creative outside of the box. Mm. And so when I when you asked me what I love to do in the world, I think that that experience really informed me in terms of being able to craft my own life, uh, frankly, make it up as I go along. And so I've, I've always had my own writing and teaching and facilitation that's been increasingly meaningful to me. And I've also loved being in a position to be able to help other authors and artists and creatives primarily through Speakeasy that you were mentioning earlier, which if a listener is unfamiliar, um, it's at thespeakeasy.info. And it's a network of readers that I connect with authors and review books, as well as the occasional album um, that are in the world of progressive and contemplative spirituality, theology, history, culture. And it's just been wonderful to be able to participate in so many book launches over the last 15 plus years and, and give a signal boost to, um, to really great ideas and to connect to really awesome readers and reviewers such as yourself. That's wonderful. You know, I, I think there is also another intersection with Abbey of the Arts, that space also of contemplative spirituality of all things Celtic, you know, it gets me in the heart. Absolutely. Any, anything you'd like to say about that part of your love in the world? For sure. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that I'm adopted. And about a decade ago, I connected with biological family for the first mm-hmm. time. And it's been a really you know, wonderful reunion, reconnection. And among other things, I was able to learn about my ethnicity, which I, you know, I hadn't previously done a you know, DNA test or anything like that. So it was like I was learning about my roots for the first time as I was connecting. And I discovered that on my birth mom's side, I am fully uh, Scots-Irish, which confirmed these, you know, Celtic spiritual leanings that have been a part of my life um, for, you know, as long as I began consciously exploring the Christian faith that I inherited, looking at these ways of being earth-honoring and heart-centered. And on my birth father's side, I'm Turkish. And that was also a revelation as well as a confirmation in that I've, you know, been drawn to to Sufism, to mm. mystical dimensions of, of Islam for a number of years as well. Uh, I would never, you know, call myself a Sufi. That, that requires a, a depth of commitment and a community that I don't currently have. Mm-hmm. But in both Celtic spirituality and these, you know, mystical depth dimensions that, that exist 
across Islam and, 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 and Sunni and, and Shia and other branches, there is this, this call to exercise the muscle of the heart, to hone our ability to love. And, you know, to me, it's, it's very similar to what Jesus says about loving God and neighbor with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, like it's not quite a neat one-to-one correlation to my my feeling, will, action, and time, but I, I do see these you know ways of, of being more intentional about a way of loving in the world than we maybe tend to give it. And I think that not only is that a a lovely idea, pardon the pun, but it's a it's a necessary survival skill if we're going to continue to exist and, and thrive as a human species in the decades ahead. Mm, yes. And so with all of those beautiful intersections around love, if you had a message of love, if you had the microphone, Mike, to share Mm. with the world, Mm. what message of love would you share with others? Mm. I think the first thing that I would say is, by and large, world, you're doing really well, especially given everything we've experienced uh, as a planet in the last couple of years with a a global pandemic and with all of the resultant uh, informational fissures that have developed as we become more and more tragically aware of the different information diets that we're, we're each on and how those can create these kind of reality funnels that really color our worlds. I recently read a report, and I wish I had it in front of me, that said that in the past year, charitable giving, nonprofit volunteering, et cetera, have gone up like 25% over pandemic levels, which is huge. Yeah, that is. And what that tells me is that, you know, beyond the the internet flame wars and all the ways that we know that we're so tired and we're so polarized, that there's still this very human and very divine, I think, impulse toward grounded love, love and action, empathy. Mm -hmm. And so my first thing would be like, okay, we're doing well. Let's not grow weary of well-doing. But, um, you know, also as as many wisdom figures have said, we, we can't pour from an empty cup. And so to find what brings us nourishment, to find what, what fills our cups in love and, and to go to that wellspring ourselves would be mm. the next thing I would say, you know, put on your own oxygen mask mm. first. And, and I think that, you know, sometimes us religious folks, we've, we've gotten this poorly in the past when we've thought about a life of love, we, we just continue to, to give and give and give until there's nothing left. And I think that that's different than what Jesus did when he consciously embraced his own death. Like, I, I do think there's a place for sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's best to approach that eyes wide open. But for many of us, especially if we happen to be householders in, in our lives, there's a, a way in which, you know, as, as Prentice Hemphill said, boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. Consciously calibrate our boundaries, yeah. you know, to figure out what those are for us. And, you know, I don't believe in balance. I don't think there's any such thing as a static golden mean that we're always occupying. I think it's always a, a tightrope walk where we're leaning on one end of the rope or the other, and that creates the balance and the synergy of those. Mm -hmm. So when I'm facilitating um, relational skills gatherings, for instance, I'm teaching people to be aware of their boundaries and to open up when you want to open up and to also honor 
when you want to close. But like that both of those are very valid and very holy ways of, of being in the world. And so I think that if we could encourage ourselves that we're already on the path, if we can nourish ourselves and if we can calibrate boundaries, then we really will be able to be lovers for the long haul. Thank you so much for all of those thoughts on love, Mike. Later on in the episode, I'm going to share a part of a blessing that's from a book called Celtic Daily Prayer, book two, farther up and further in. And there's a blessing in the context of a couple's relationship, but it extends for me as I read through it to be a much bigger kind of blessing. And so the end of this blessing called Don't Shut Me Out I would like to read to you as a blessing to you in your work of love in the world. Thank you. It says this, God has released us. God has set you free to love each other freely. God understands how hard it is to live in love at all. Mm. That is a blessing to you today and for your time and for your work in the world. And again, thank you for lifting me up out of a pit and giving me words of encouragement and hope in the books that you sent my way all those years ago. You're so welcome, Tara. Thank you for everything that you're doing in your parish work with this podcast. I I know it's connecting with so many people. Thanks, Mike, for answering three and a half questions about love. To learn more about Mike's work, visit him at M-I-K-E-M-O-R-R-E-L-L dot org. I have a question for you to ponder this week when it comes to the process of being released or lifted up or us being part of that process of releasing. I suppose it could be said that we all wear grave clothes of one sort or another. Sometimes we look at life as just limitation instead of opportunity. The negative can often overshadow the positive. However, in this Jesus story, he overcomes all that and then asks people to help Lazarus by removing the grave clothes to help let him go. In the simple act of asking people to help Lazarus, I think Jesus assigns some resurrection responsibility to the crowd, to the people, to us. Could it be that people have the ability, with God's help, to remove grave clothes? Are we the crowd given the call to help others live into hope, to be remembered, to be lifted up, to be untied and set free? Like I said, we all have areas of stuckness where we need help. But what if we too are called to help unstuck and free others? Are we all fit to be untied? In all this discussion around the power of lifting each other up and releasing one another from ties that hold us captive, I discovered a beautiful liturgy in the book Celtic Daily Prayer, Book 2. This liturgy is titled, Don't Shut Me Out. This liturgy or blessing is often used by a couple as an act of recommitment. It is a blessing that claims God's desire to be close and for the couple to be close to one another in times of challenge as well as togetherness. As we consider the power of relationship to untie us from those things that hold us fast, 
I hope these words of commitment, of blessing, of not being shut out, remind you of love's power to lift and bring new life. Don't shut me out. I release you. I don't intend to aggravate or smother you. I understand that you need space. I won't demand it all. I love you. I made the choice to share with you my every day. I will not push or interfere, but silently, I am here. Don't shut me out. When you are hurting, let me hurt with you. When you are angry, let me drain it all away. Forgive me all my expectations, and please don't shut me out. God has released us. God set us free to love each other freely. God understands how hard it is to live in love at all. The song from Tom Jones reminds us to not waste our lives because that would be a sin. When others are stuck in a pit, we can be a hand up to solid ground. When others are lost without direction, we can point them to the light. When others feel tied up in difficult circumstances, we can untie their binding and walk with them on the journey. With the help of love, together we can be released to love again. I am your holy shenanigans muse, Tara Lamont Eastman. Thank you for joining us this week for Holy Shenanigans that surprise, encourage, redirect, and turn life upside down, all in the name of love. This is an unpredictable spiritual adventure that is always sacred, but never stuffy. Thanks to Ian Eastman for sound editing and Mike Morell for being this week's Holy Shenanigans podcast special guest. Remember, love has the power to lift and untie. And you, dear heart, are fit to be untied.